This is Problem Solved, the IISE podcast, where we talk to industrial and systems engineers about their work, ideas, and solutions. Welcome to Problem Solved, the IISE podcast. I'm Michael Hughes. Today, we welcome Calvin Williams, founder and CEO of Improver.com, a strategy execution and improvement software. Williams, the president of IISE's Atlanta professional chapter, discusses how he has gone from the rock bottom of eviction notices to entrepreneurial success, his love and disdain for lean, and the responsibilities that come with creating a successful minority-owned company in a socially turbulent America. Thanks for joining us on Problem Solved today. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing amazing. Doing amazing. Thanks for inviting me. So let's jump right in, my friend. You are living the dream of many an ISC. You are a <laughs> senior leader for a major consumer products packaging company. Why risk it all to go out on your own? That's a great question, Mike. Actually, I was living a dream. Uh, apparently, uh, I don't know, maybe I enjoy pain in some sense, but... <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, I, I guess when you're an entrepreneur at heart, you know it. And, you know, when you're in a corporate environment that doesn't always support entrepreneurial thinking and behavior, um, you just kind of sense that, yeah, you know, this is nice and all the money's nice. The comfort is nice. The, you know, the status is nice. Um, you know, with a wife and kids, they, they certainly appreciate those things, too. Um, but at the same time, you, you kind of know who you are and you know what you need psychologically. So, um, you know, you're, you'll probably never re- quite reach your potential unless you, unless you go for it. Right. I like to call it walking the corporate plank <laughs> and, and, and just hope that plank is, uh, somewhere where there's an Island nearby. <laughs> so, so you can swim. So you're ashore. not in the middle of the ocean. You're yeah. actually somewhere near shore sometimes somewhere near shore at some point. And uh, yeah, so I was at I was at Clorox. Most recently, I was the senior leader of global continuous improvement. And uh, they got about 36 factories globally. I spent most of my time in North and South America driving strategy deployment and continuous improvement and change management and uh, got a ton done. But even with uh, that work and enjoying the work itself, knowing that, uh, you know, the environment probably isn't conducive for my natural way of thinking, which is a very entrepreneurial way of thinking. So that's it, man. Had to do it. So you say it was natural. So your drive for entrepreneurship didn't necessarily come as you grew up and went to school and through the educational process and went to college and got into the corporate environment. That was something that you kind of had a dream of as childhood. And if I remember you grew up in Chicago, right? I did. I did. South Chicago. You got a good memory, Mike. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I think it's always been there. It's been it was seeded probably at an early age, like in the, the, the environment where I grew up, the entrepreneurs were the rock stars, you know, so. Um, and the rock stars are kind of entrepreneurs, too, I, I suppose, <laughs> literally. But good point. Um, um, so, yeah, even at a when I was really young, I wanted to be a doctor, believe it or not. And uh, I I think when I reached maybe eighth grade, ninth grade, I started to realize that, yeah, doctors got to go to school for a long time. And I'm not sure if that's what I really want to do. So uh, um, even even then, though, probably at age nine or 10, I started going door to door in the wintertime in South Chicago and with a shovel 
and knocking on doors and saying, hey, would uh, would you like me to shovel your snow? I'll, I'll do it for 15 bucks. Oh, my and goodness. Yeah. Yeah. For a nine, 10 year old, you know, 15 bucks, three or four houses, five houses a day. We were doing great. Uh, it, you know, we were doing great in, in, in Chicago winters. And, uh, you know, some of that went toward helping mom pay the pay the light bill on, on some months. So, um, yeah, I think it was there. I, I, even then, I didn't know it was entrepreneurship. I didn't know it was like, you know, you're destined to run your own company one day. Uh, I thought it was just making money. And, um, you know, since then, I've always done something. I've always had something going. Even in college, uh, I actually started a record label. And we used to, yeah, yeah. Um, we used to make records in my, in my little one studio, one, one bedroom studio where the bedroom was also the living room and the couch was the bed. Uh, I I was in there making, um, writing lyrics. I had a good friend in Los Angeles who, who, who produced like beats. And then I would like, you know, plug up a microphone to my little compacts, you know, $500 compacts computer. And I would like, you know, uh, lay the lyrics on top of the beat, uh, print off CDs right there from the, from the computer drive and package them. And, you know, we'd go out Saturdays, you know, Friday and Saturday night and, you know, we'd sell three, $400 worth of CDs, you know, on, on campus right there. So in, in, in Lincoln, Nebraska. So, um, and even since then, that was 20 years ago, even since then in corporate, I've always had something going, you know, in addition to my day job. So, um, yeah, I would say it's it's been a part of me for for as long as I can remember. Um, it's just sort of matured into, all right, you you need to be a serious entrepreneur and businessman. <clears throat> you're going to have to leave the, comp- the the corporate safety nest and you're going to have to do this and see what happens. And uh, yeah, October, probably three years ago we did it and we've been in business three years and growing. So it's been a good story. That is fantastic. So let's see, you, you shoveled snow, <laughs> you've made records, <laughs> you're building improver. Yeah. What other businesses have you had? Because you said, you said you always had something on the side. Oh my gosh. You really want to open up that can of worms, Mike? Um, <laughs> hey, that's not a can of worms. That's your life. And it sounds really interesting. It is my life. It is my life. Um, I, my first tech company was called Excelville. I started that 11 years ago that allowed, uh, I hired a developer and, um, essentially it allows people to upload spreadsheets that other people can come and buy them from, from, uh, my, my marketplace website. Um, that was my first foray into like software tech. I've always been sort of an Excel guru, you know, starting out as an IE and, uh, my first boss, when I started out at Tyson as an IE said, Hey, you're going to either be a master at Excel or you're going to have to find somewhere else to work. Wow. <laughs> I was like, wow, really? Okay. Well, pressure. thank you for letting me know, making that so clear for me. I know what I need to work on. Good. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I kind of got going that way, but I noticed I had a knack for it more and more. Um, in fact, I took a COBOL class in, in uh, high school um, as a freshman and my teacher used to throw the craziest curveballs to to see if I can figure it out. Right. I was like the, the kid who got it figured out. We used to have to write a little script. We had a database and the script should output the right output. And the teacher could evaluate the output and see if it's right or not. And I kind of had a knack for it. Right. I was always first one done. Um, my teacher, you know, on parent teacher day, my teacher called my mom in and said, hey, your son is figuring out stuff that even I can't figure out in terms of like creating these scripts and getting these programs to compile. So 
Um, I had something there, but again, I didn't know what it was, right? I didn't have direction to know that that's actually a useful skill. And you could do a lot with that, especially in today's age where, you know, tech companies are selling for, you know, billions on end. <laughs> so I had no idea what I was working with. Um, I was thinking about football and basketball at the time, right. And later track. Um, and yeah, so it sort of came full circle as I, as I reached maturity, but yeah, I started a tech company called Excelville. Um, my wife is also somewhat of a serial entrepreneur. We started a real estate business together. At one point, we started a document translation business. Um, we lived in Topeka, Kansas, and we, we were, we were trying to work with the state capital to do translation. Uh, she's, she's bilingual. She speaks Spanish as well. I don't know. There's probably a good five or six others. Um, most of them failed. <laughs> most of them never got to market. You know, most of them never got to a point where we actually could sell to people and get customers, but a few of them have, and a few of them have done well. So but that experience kind of helped prepare you for, you know, your master plan with improver and improver.com. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. So tell us, tell us, you know, the lessons you learned and how you applied them to improver and then what improver does. Oh boy. Um, there's a lot of lessons there. Um, you ever heard the expression creativity over capital? I have. Yeah. But explain it to me in your terms, in your world. So as an entrepreneur, you learn that's, you know, money is a tool. Um, and and what I've learned is that you got to get the job done with or without your tools. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know, um, in the process of starting Improver and previous businesses I've started, um, I actually had a management consultant firm called Manufishing at 1.2. Um, it kind of morphed into Improver. And uh, yeah, we've gone rock bottom multiple times, you know, near like, oh, crap, where are we going to live? Like wife and three kids. <laughs> oh. Where are we going to live if this doesn't go through? Right. And then uh, luckily, we've been lucky enough for things to go through when they did. And then it sort of kept us afloat for the next thing that worked out. And um, so, yeah, money's a tool. But just like any tool, uh, as a leader who is, you know, committed to achieving the goal, you got to get the job done with or without the tool, right? So um, if you think about how that applies to Improver, Improver is a strategy execution and improvement software, right? If you think of strategy execution as uh, being clear about where you're, you know, what's most important to improve. So, you know, we're going to achieve X. Um, we're going to go from X to Y by Z date, right? That's setting a clear direction and speed and direction. Um, and then getting people to align behind that direction, getting them all to commit to, I'm going to take my area of responsibility from X to Y by Z, right? Um, These are outcomes, of course, not projects, not tasks, but outcomes. Um, Getting everybody to sort of link in and grab the rope and pull that rope in the same direction, strategically aligned. Um, The next piece is uh, execution and improvement where you got to systematically drive execution against strategy, right? Because it's human nature to sort of get sucked into the urgent, forget about the important. It's human nature. And if you don't have that mechanism that's saying, no, you got to carve out time and take care of the important two, uh, people won't do it on mass. People won't do it. Right. You have a few that will. That's the rare few, the rare five percent. <laughs> but everybody fights the fires, but they don't sit back and do the fire suppression. They don't do the fire suppression. It's just a natural behavior. Right. So you you, you got to manage that. Right. Um, and that's what Improver helps to do. The last thing it does is rewards and recognizes success. And I can't express the importance of that, especially coming from an operations background. Again, 20 years in operations with various CPGs, Nestle, Tyson, Mars, 
military industrial base and so forth, Clorox. In operations, a mistake can cost the company billions, right? Depending on what kind of scale we're talking here. So we get hypersensitive about mistakes. If something goes wrong, it gets all the attention in the universe, right? Attention is a, is a finite resource. So if everybody's paying attention to the things that go wrong every day, very little attention goes to the things that go right. And the reality is that talented people don't want to work in environments where the best thing that can happen today is I didn't get fired. <laughs> I didn't screw up. Yeah. <laughs> the most the most talented people go and work for really rewarding career fields. Right. And if 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 manufacturing in the U.S. and operations type jobs in the U.S., there's massive labor shortages and things like that. If you're going to win the talent game, you need to make the work more rewarding. So one of the things Improver does is it it actually makes work more rewarding by recognizing success. When people do have success, they hit milestones. They they drive appropriate action. Um, you can earn coins. You can earn certificates of achievement. You can earn badges. Um, leaders can sort of gamify, make contests with those coins and say, hey, you know, if you know whoever gets the most coins in the month of January, we'll offer a day off or you start talking about promotions and bonuses and all that stuff. You've now got an objective game that everyone can understand and everyone can win if they put the effort and, you know, have success and get results. That really speaks to my heart a lot because um, several people that I see come from the same newspaper background where people on the, on the comms team, let's just say the positive reinforcement was not necessarily in that environment. Yep. Being at IIC, the the benefits of being in an environment that is positively rewarding when you do well and recognizes your success and wants you to succeed. So it sounds like you really hit the nail on the head there with Improver. That's it. Right. And uh, I mean, I would say that's one of the things that drove me nuts in the corporate environment, too, is, you know, I went to work every day feeling like I was hitting home runs back-to-back home runs. Like, look at this project, incredible outcomes. The people are happy. Everybody loves it. And then there would be this sort of counter narrative developing of, oh, there was a mistake. Oh, there was a mistake. Oh, you know, and the the mistakes sort of became the game. And when you have a culture like that, it becomes a culture of the best thing you can do is to do nothing. All you're going to do is get pounded on no matter what you do. There it is. Take no initiative stay in the box, do nothing because that's the best thing you could do. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's to me, you just can't keep talented people around in that kind of environment. Right. Yeah. And think about that. If you, if, if you're hitting 97% home runs and you're striking out 3% of the time, I mean, that's better than any baseball player who's ever lived in the entire universe because I think Ty Cobb hit, I think 367 (laughs) or 371, his entire year, his entire career, not, 997. Exactly. And the, the thing that gets skewed is the mistakes, because if you're trying things, you're, you're inevitably going to fail and you're inevitably going to make mistakes. That's part of the process of trying and stretching yourself. Right. Um, the in that environment, it tends to make the mistake, which was minuscule and inconsequential, seem just as bad and or just as powerful in magnitude as the home run you hit when in reality, they're not equal in magnitude, not even close. But in that type of environment, that mistake is just like it scares the crap out of people because they they you know, the, the it's kind of a culture of, of fear where, mm-hmm. you know, 
the fear is much heavier than the desire to win. You know, the fear of losing is much, much greater than the desire to win. So what is your scariest moment since you stepped out on your own, Calvin? <laughs> um, yes, I would say there was a point where I started a uh, manufacturing, right? This was probably six years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, when I stepped out, I, I was with a company called AT Carney. It's a management consultant firm. Um, and, and they had a manufacturing center of excellence. I was part of that. And um, I decided to step out on my own and, you know, try my hand at being, you know, running a main, uh, management consulting company. And um, I had a few clients lined up. I had a few that said, yeah, yeah, we, you know, we'd want to do something right away. So let it, let us know when you, when you're, t- when you're ready and we want to do something right away. It was like five clients, all five of them came back and said, well, the timing is not good. We can't do it right now. <laughs> right. So I'm like, okay, <laughs> Not what I had in mind. Definitely a zero percent rate is not good. Zero <laughs> percent rate. It's like, oh boy, okay. So you learn re- really quickly that you need contracts, right? You need it on mm-hmm. paper uh, before you can bank it. But we, yeah, we ended up securing some business. You know, it was kind of scattered here and there. Um, but uh, we 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 decided to um, grow the family, and we added one to the family, and the expenses sort of outgrew the revenue it got to a point where we were, we were getting like eviction notices. Oh my goodness. Yeah. From where we were living. And it was like, Oh crap. Um, we could hit rock bottom. Um, my wife was kind of starting a real estate business at the same time. I had actually taken a step back and got my real estate license and helped her sort of, I was sort of playing doubles both sides there. Mm -hmm. Um, probably not focusing enough on any one of them, which was part of the problem. (laughs) So, um, so, yeah, it got to a point where, yeah, I mean, we were one paycheck away or one missed payment away from being out on the streets. Oh, and my goodness. Yeah. Um, and we got lucky. Right. Um, I ended up taking the job with uh, with Clorox, you know, and, um, and it was it was a blessing in so many ways because, yeah, it, it you know, it kind of got us to a good place um, with the baby, with our own like finances, at least short term. Um, it got us to. Uh, I learned a ton about strategy deployment and execution change, you know, change. I led a change management initiative at the enterprise level, um, got to go see a lot of the world, South America, some other places, uh, Canada. Um, so it was, it was actually a blessing in many ways that ended up seeding what we needed to get improver up and off the ground and running. It set us up for, for success and what was to come next. So yeah, that was probably the scariest moment. Um, but like I say, it's one of those things that teaches you, you think you got it bad. You don't know how bad it can get if you don't take care of your business. <laughs> but at the same time, it also teaches you that the worst case scenario isn't the end of the world either. And everything you do sort of sets you up for what's to come next. So you can be near rock bottom, like you're saying, and you can bounce back. And that kind of seems like a almost the life of an entrepreneur that a lot of the biographies that I've read have talked about companies that, you know, they go up and down, they go up and down. It's like a jigsaw yeah. and they learn the lessons and then apply them to future endeavors. Like it seems like you have done with the improver. That's exactly, that's exactly what it's like. And um, I look at it like quenching steel, you know, 
Um, my daughter has me watching this show called Forged and Fire on Netflix. It's actually an interesting show. And um, they all have to make blades and things like that. And they have to quench the blade, right? You sort of heat the steel up then mm-hmm. you dip it in the oil or the water and you quench it. And the, that's the process for like hardening the steel, right? It takes it from soft, more malleable to very hard. I think about entrepreneurship in the same way where those moments where you go low enough <laughs> to where you think it's the end of the world, that's actually you quenching the steel. And you sort of got to stay in there long enough to come back out of that and get to the other side. Cause uh, the upside is what you do it for. Um, I guess the good news is there's only one way to go from that moment. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> from that point, there's only one way to go. What specific lessons did you get from Clorox that you applied to improver? You mentioned that you, you learned a lot by doing all that strategy execution, the change management and the process improvement spread over two entire continents. Yeah. You know, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked that is uh, the the thing, the biggest thing that I walked away with is that um, improvement for the sake of improvement may not be improvement at all. Really? What I mean by that is think about it like polishing the doorknobs on the Titanic. Yes, we all like beautiful doorknobs, but if the ship is sinking, that's probably not what you should be focused on. Right. <laughs> Great point. And, and yeah, it's so the iceberg, not the doorknobs. Yeah. You better be looking at that iceberg and maybe trying to patch up that hole. Right. If you got 10 minutes and you're going to polish a doorknob versus patch the hole, you better go patch the hole. Right? <laughs> we can deal with the doorknobs <laughs> later, uh, you know, when it's more appropriate. So um, I guess to, to, to sort of put that in, in uh, more practical terms is that, Improvement should be led by the company strategy. You're like, what's most important to improve? Like if the company's trying to grow, which I don't know many companies that are not trying to grow. Uh, it's not a good, <laughs> if you look at the not CEO. Not a good future plan. Not a good future plan. Not at all. Um, the CEO of every company's job is to grow the company, you know, just generally speaking. So um, the CEO is focused on growth. That priority, how are we going to grow, should cascade into the company and if you got, you know, 5% of every day to commit toward making improvements, that 5% should add up to the company growing. You know, it should be, it should be strategy led versus what we call random improvement. Um, random improvement, just go out and fix anything you don't like, could turn out to end up hurting the company. If you think about it, like uh, the company's trying to grow by acquiring new customers and in- increasing throughput, then going out and cutting costs by cutting headcount might limit your ability to actually grow and serve those new customers. So how you improve should be tied to what the company's trying to do. Yeah. If you're in a service industry, you know, and, and you don't have people to give the service to your customers. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. You've cut costs, but you, cut costs. you can pat yourself on the back, but you can't cut your way to growth, I guess. That's a great way to say it. That's a great way to say it. Yeah. And I, you know, I was, I was trained in lean. Um, you know, I had companies that had lean programs and lead, lean certification programs that I'd gone through. I've lean six Sigma certified. Um, and you know, I sort of started to, as of recently see lean as maybe a little bit too narrow in, in the way it's the, the, in the way it's conceived and, you know, um, just just because if you think about it from a CEO standpoint, which is the, the way I've learned to think as of, because of what I do. Right. Um, who's focused on growth. The, just the term itself, lean sort of suggests that you're going to cut, reduce, you know, trim the fat, you know, get smaller. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but as a CEO, all my 
energy is toward how do I grow, right? How do I become more fit so that I'm more aligned with what the market wants and find a bigger market so that I can grow the company? Um, not so interested in reducing, reducing on the bot on, on the front line so that I, you know, it just doesn't, it just, it just doesn't imply growth. So do you think lean has kind of come to be, uh, I don't want to say a detriment because there's been a lot of successes, but there's also a lot of, you know, the literature is full of lean process improvement programs that did not succeed. The failure rate is unacceptably high for lean. Yeah. Um, and a lot of folks have sort of bastardized lean from its true intent of, mm -hmm. you know, bringing more value while eliminating the resources required to bring that value to, we're just going to cut head count down to the bone, right? That's kind of the way it's been applied in practice. And what that's led to is companies not being able to create value, right? The customer says, I don't want blue anymore. I want orange. You're so busy fighting blue fires that you can't even get to orange. <laughs> so, yeah, orange is still on the ship stuck in LA. It's stuck at the LA port somewhere. That's it. Because you right? didn't order it last year. You don't have it in your stock, et cetera, et cetera, whatever. We don't have it in the stock. We can't retool the machines. We just mm -hmm. can't do that. We just need to keep fighting blue fires because that's all we're staffed to do, you know? So, and the other part of that is to your point, right? The ship's on the dock. You know, Lean is is a big advocate of just in time, just in time, one piece flow, um, you know, Kanban, you know, all those sort of tools and sort of core tenants of Lean work beautifully well when all things are stable. Mm -hmm. When your suppliers are stable, when your customers are stable, the moment you start to introduce disruption, mm -hmm. all that stuff really hurts the company to the point where it can even put you out of business. Right. So um, and most companies operate in a very unstable environment. Well, we're pretty much in an unstable environment now. And it seems like we have been since, oh, I don't know, March of 2020. Um, yeah. Every time we think things are going to stabilize, another variant comes and That's the thing, things right? happen with the, with the COVID situation. I mean, we would probably be in the office talking to each other right now in our studio because you're locally based in Atlanta as opposed to on zoom, but right. there's this whole pandemic thing. So there's yeah, that. it's a, it's a, it's a constant disruption. How do you deal with that? That's a great question. I think agility is the way, right. Um, can you like, like, like Mike Tyson says, you know, everybody's got a great plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> 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 and this supply chain thing is a punch in the face. It's like, Oh crap. You know, all that, lean stuff we did. Oh, can we still even do it? You know, at this point, mm -hmm. we don't have the people, we don't have the material, you know? Mm -hmm. So the way to, the way to kind of structure a business is for agility, for what I call fitness, right. Mm -hmm. To, to be able to take a punch, you know, and, 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 and deliver a counter punch, right. In, in a way that keeps up with, 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 with reality. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, I think what companies, instead of thinking of becoming lean, I think what should they should be thinking of is becoming fit. Right. Um, because a fit person or a fit company uh, is able to meet their goals. You know, you're fit to achieve. So would you call yourself anti-lean or um, is that putting too strong a spin on it? It's probably too strong. I wouldn't say anti-lean. I think lean has taught us an incredible amount. Mm -hmm. And I think some of the philosophies of lean are timeless. But I think in practice, it takes a little more tooling to, to know how to practice lean in, in, a, in an effective way. That makes that makes sense for your company. And there's probably some tools that 
are good for business that lean with sort of not encourage mm-hmm. okay. <laughs> you sort of got to make those decisions and go right. Go with, go with what makes sense. Cause I can tell you right now, you know, lean is all about, you know, low inventory and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, soon as the supply chain disruption hit, guess who was making all the money? The ones that was holding all the inventory. <laughs> That's why you're a CEO and I'm an interviewer. You got the right answers. <laughs> I wouldn't say that exactly. I I wouldn't use those exact words, but yeah, yeah, sure. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, if you had just massive inventory buffers and this thing hit and, you know, you can't get raw materials in versus the company who was like one piece flow off from end to end and this thing hit, hell, you have nothing to offer anymore. And the ones who held the inventory were making all the money now. So because they had stuff to sell, they had something to sell. So yeah. In general, yes, the philosophy of lean is is good, right? You should be like in the in the arc of business progress. You should be arcing that way and sort of con- trying to control this in the end supply chain so that you can do that. But there are always situations as the world becomes more volatile and unpredictable. You sort of got to build a business that's able to adapt quickly to the new reality because the new reality there seems to be a new reality every other week now. Very, very true. You know, speaking of volatility and and in today's world, particularly, you know, kind of in the in the social and political realm, there's been a a lot of um, a lot of disruption and a lot of social evil. Do you feel, I guess, any kind of added responsibility being an African-American entrepreneur during this time of uh, kind of a social and racial upheaval that we're having in this country? Oh, man, that's a that's a powerful question. Um, And. If I said it wasn't part of my reality, I'd be lying. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to say that. Um, it's certainly a, a factor. Um, growing up, I used to think if I just do good and I'm a good person, it won't affect me. Right. But uh, in growing up, <laughs> I could name you a good handful of scenarios and maybe a lot more than I realized that, yeah, it does matter. Yeah. You know, it, it may not matter to me, but it matters to the person across the table. So, yeah. Um, it matters to them whether whether they're outward about it or not. You know, it's a factor. So yeah. um, when I talk about like starting Improver and raising money, you know, um, there are people who are, you know, not minorities who have nothing but an idea and they can raise millions. And then, you know, we've we've actually done a round of fundraising and we pitched to hundreds of investors and we had customers, we had revenue, we had a working product, we had customers that were thrilled and satisfied, and the offers just were not coming. You had a business, not an idea, and you couldn't get, you had trouble getting funding. We had a business, yeah. fully functional, rolling, customers coming in. Fortunately for us, um, I'm of the mindset of, hey, I'm going to find a way to be successful with or without, you know, uh, venture capital or institutional mm-hmm. money. Mm-hmm. We'll find a way to be successful. You know, I, I plan on not raising money, but if the money comes, we can go faster. Right. That's the, right. That's the concept. Um, money is a tool. But like you said earlier in this conversation, if you don't have the tool, Calvin Williams is going to get it done. Bingo. You said it. That's exactly it. So um, I approach everything like that, you know, especially in business, uh, business and in, in, in working as a, in a job also similar way. But um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it is a thing. Um, I do feel some responsibility to give back as well. Right. So let's say we 
we grow the hell out of Improver and it's wildly successful and, and Microsoft or Salesforce buys an Improver for a billion dollars one day. Um, I mean, that's a lot of cash, way more than I could ever imagine spending. Um, what I'd probably do is find people who are doing really good things in underserved communities and back them financially. That's a fantastic dream. And, you know, think I I can tell you one thing, if you do ever get that uh, multi-million or billion dollar offer, you'll never see an eviction notice again. I hope not. (laughs) (laughs) I hope not. I hope not. Maybe I can reduce the number of eviction notices uh, globally with that money. So (laughs) that'd be fantastic. (laughs) You you mentioned giving back. Uh, You're you're president of our local IISE chapter here in Atlanta. Yep. And I was around for the rebirth of that when Professor Chen Zhou at Georgia Tech resurrected the chapter, I believe, in 2010, 2011, something like that. That sounds about right. And you're keeping it going strong. So so what do you get out of that? Why do you why do you do that? I actually joined the chapter five years ago, maybe um, as a sort of like a marketing director, you know, and then VP of marketing type of type of role. Um, so, yeah, I sort of came in like a couple of years after the the re the resurrection. <laughs> and then mm-hmm. um, and then I came to maybe help speed things up and drive some more engagement. Um, but it was it was still somewhat of a sleepy chapter. We did a few things a year. Um, but, you know, I, I think I have a. Again, it's, it's, it's natural for me to want to give back. Right. And this is something I tell my kids all the time is, you know, to whom much is given, much is expected. Right. And I always felt very privileged, even if I wasn't. <laughs> I always felt like I was like, you know, I was always a pretty good student and um, and, and, and maybe didn't have to work hard as some others in school. And um, I felt like I was blessed with a lot of talents, you know, a lot of different things I could do. Um, and I felt like others didn't, we're not blessed with that, you know, that variety of talents, you know, to that level, blessed with athleticism, actually went to college on a track and field scholarship oh, wow. uh, as well as academics with engineering. So, you know, I felt like I was just blessed with a lot, you know, and I always felt like to whom much is given much is expected. So, you know, serving as chapter president is just one way for me to give back, right. Give back to those who maybe could hear some things that I should have heard <laughs> early mm-hmm. in my career, you know, I wish I had known this bingo. Right. Um, and I got a good friend of mine. He's uh, like I said, he's in, he's in Las Vegas. Um, he's he, he and I used to make music back in the early two thousands, but we're still friends. This now. is the one that was your partner in the uh, record. They, I guess, guess right. it would have been a record company. I guess it would have been a CD company by then that shows you my age. Yeah, it was a CD company. It's still called record company you know, yeah. to, to your credit. Uh, <laughs> um, but he and I are still friends. And, you know, we talk all the time. Like if if I could go find the 15 year old version of me, I would just grab that kid and put him under my wing and we'd go do great things together. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think I think like that all the time. Right. And, you know, um, ISC is a, is, a, is a very low, uh, low burden way to give back in that sense to, to, you know, other professionals that are in a similar position and as well as uh, younger professionals coming into their careers. So you're talking about giving back. What do you get out of it though? What is in it? The old, the old, what's in it for you question, as far as yeah. being, you know, let's say just, just being an IASC member, how long have you been a member? You know, I started out in college, so it's been 20 years probably um, on and off, you know, mm-hmm. uh, 
I, I got to confess my, my, my records is a little spotty there, <laughs> but most members are like that. They go to college, get out, let it go, then come back. I wish they just back. stay. That'd make my job a lot easier. <laughs> and honestly, it would make my job a lot easier if I would have just stayed coming out of college. Mm. It would have made my life a lot easier if I would have just stayed, you know, stayed from college into early professionalism, mm-hmm. stay, stay, stay. Cause there's so many benefits and resources that the organization offers that mm-hmm. I had no awareness of until I'm just learning them now. Right. And <laughs> the good news is I got another 20 plus years ahead of me that yeah. <laughs> I could take better, much, much better advantage of what's there for me. But yeah, I don't know. I'm a, uh, it's hard for me to answer like what's in it for me. Cause I guess it's not so much the, the tangible things. It's the intangible sense of service that I get from, from serving, you know, as, as a board member. Would it have made your life easier back, you know, go back to young Calvin getting out of college and, you know, you, you, you left IISE for a while and you came back and but you said it would have made your life so much easier if you hadn't. Give me how it would have helped you or let the audience know how it would have helped you to just remain. Yeah, I got a, I got a, I got a, a bullseye answer for that one. The thing that a young professional needs more than anything is mentorship. They need people who have been down the tra- the train tracks a little bit mm-hmm. and can just give them a few tips of how to transition from academic, you know, student to professional. And those first two or three years of your career are probably the most impactful years of your entire career. And not all of us are blessed with excellent bosses who can teach us the ropes and can teach us how to be effective and can teach us how to how to collect data and how to navigate the organizational politics and how to how to work with people and how to deal with people. Um, All those things are sort of mission critical. And these aren't these aren't things that you learn in school so much. These are things that sort of hit you like a train as soon as you step out into the real world. So um, having somebody to sort of teach you those soft skills more so is a game changer, in my opinion. Right. And can can help you do in 10 years what it would otherwise take you 30 or 40 years to do between that and uh, learning some sales skills, sales and influencing skills, because it's one thing to know the right answer is a whole other thing to get people to do it. The whole getting people to buy in. That's one of the things I learned. One of the first things I learned was a difficulty with, with engineering, you know, basically, particularly industrial engineering. When I moved over from the newspapers world into ISE, engineers can have the greatest ideas in the world. But if they can't get the workforce and or the C-suite to buy into it, ain't nothing going to happen. Ain't nothing going to happen. It's a great idea that's going to go like toilet paper. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's going to go straight down the drain. Um, and it's going to be the brilliant, the most brilliant thing that never happened. So, <laughs> so, so yeah, those, those kind of skills coming into the work world. I mean, obviously you're still learning. You're still, you're still, still trying to figure out how to be a better engineer and how to be a better professional. Um, but certainly your ability to get others to take, to act on what you, you know, act on your ideas. Um, because the re- reality about ideas is that everybody's got an idea. The question is whose idea is going to get acted on. And there are always more act ideas than there's time to execute. Execution is a finite resource. And I guess this is kind of getting back to improver, right? Execution, right. Execution is a finite resource. Every act idea won't get implemented. So why should it be yours as opposed to the guy sitting next to you, your left and your right, right? 
the quicker you can learn that skill, the better off your career is going to go. That sounds like fantastic advice. So I'm going to wrap up. Um, like talking to engineers, I just ask three or four questions and bam, they tell me the whole world, which is a <laughs> wonderful thing. Wonderful way to do an interview, frankly, Calvin. Yeah, my pleasure. But, man. but if there's anything that uh, that I should have asked that I did not ask about your world or about Improver or about the future, this is your time, sir. Oh, man. Um, you know, as, as a chapter president, to be honest, I don't have a lot of visibility into how the other professional chapters are doing. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's, it's somewhat of a challenge because the membership may or may not be very engaged or interested in what the chapter is offering or, mm -hmm. um, I mean, there, there are some challenges because you, you, in a sense, you may be pushing a rope a little bit where okay. they're not necessarily pulling anything from you and they would pay their dues happily with or without the chapter's engagement. So, okay. um, so this is this is something that we, you know, we we struggle with as a chapter, but we've had some success with as well. Um, I wouldn't say by any means we are where we want to be, but I would say that we are we're certainly active and we've seen, we've seen some some spotlights of like really good things and uh, some potential for better things to come. So um, so I would say, yeah, one of the one of the key learnings from that is. Um, the things we're doing, for example, is we we try we, we host an event every single month. I've noticed that I get the invitations. Good, good. Excellent. Yeah. We want to see you at more of those. My <laughs> I would like to. It's been a few years since I've been to one. Um, I remember good. back um, I went with uh, Professor Joe and others down to the uh, it was the, the Norfolk Southern Multimodal Facility down in Austell. Nice plant tour. That was so cool, man. Yeah, that's um, a nice one. You know, all the whole the the big TUs being lifted up by the cranes, and then you go into the control room, and there are these guys and gals who are sitting there, they're playing on the computer and basically setting up how they're going to stack on on the railroad flatbeds. Awesome. And I'm and I've had this realization that if I had been smarter in school, I could have grown up and had a job like that playing Tetris for a living. <laughs> yeah, it's not too late, Mike. It's not too late. You still got time. <laughs> All right. Yeah. I don't know if you didn't even know if you need a degree for that, but you know, you probably certainly need some certs or something, but yeah, but yeah, I think, um, you know, the, the I think the chapters, the pr professional chapters have can offer a lot that, that, um, young professionals especially need, but even that as you get older, you feel like you need to give back. I think as a board member, it offers a chance to, to develop your own leadership, but yeah, I mean, some of the challenge we face is like keeping people engaged and keep, keeping people participating and, and then making sure they could get the benefit that the, that the organization has to offer. Well, Calvin, we're going to wrap it up there. Thank you so much. This has been a fantastic interview as far as I'm concerned. I've had a great time. Always enjoy talking to you. The pleasure is mine, Mike. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Problem Solved, the IISC podcast, a production of the Institute of Industrial and Systems Engineers in Metro Atlanta. This podcast is produced by David Brandt, Keith Albertson, and Michael Hughes, and edited by David Brandt. You can listen to all episodes of Problem Solved and learn about sponsorship opportunities by visiting our website, podcast.iise.org. You can also learn more about IISE at the Institute's website, www.iise.org.